Hello and welcome back to C-Suite Conversation with Scott Miller. That's me, your host each week. This is Franklin Covey's newest weekly podcast dedicated to conversations with people from all walks of life that have different journeys and academic backgrounds and nationalities and interests in terms of industry, but what they all share in common is that they've made it to the C-suite, which is not everybody's goal, but it is some people's goal in their career. And today I'm honored that joining us is Amy Shore. She is the EVP and Chief Customer Officer at Nationwide. You can't get the jingle out of your mind if you're uh, an American or perhaps in North America and watch their customers. In fact, my three boys rode with me today to the studio and they hummed or sang the Nationwide jingle the entire car ride here because they're so familiar with the brand. Amy, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Well, I will spare you my singing voice, but I uh, everywhere I go, I wear my pin proudly, and you can imagine the number of versions of the jingle I have heard. And thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of the show. Amy, our pleasure. Don't give my sons any ideas that there could be other versions, because it will go <laughs> south quickly. They are 8, 10, and 12, and they're in that zone, if you know what mm -hmm. I mean. Their favorite movie is Austin Powers, so it's a slippery slope on most occasions. So, Amy, uh, glad you're here today. As you know, this is an audio and video podcast each week dedicated to C-suite conversations. Some week at CEOs, other weeks at CIOs, CTOs, CMOs. And today you are the chief customer officer. You, like me, have had a very long career inside of one organization. Of course, you worked other places. You're based in Columbus, Ohio, where Nationwide is headquartered. What I thought we might do today is like with most guests, Amy, would you take a few minutes and take your time and will you talk about your entire professional journey, where you were raised, where you went to school, perhaps your academic background early on and kind of your way up into the C-suite now to be the chief customer officer at Nationwide? Well, sure, and, and, and thanks. I promise not to make this too boring. I'll, I'll start in a log cabin in the woods far, far away. No, no, I'm just kidding. So my journey starts in southwest Michigan in a small town called Homer. Homer is home is the town slogan. And uh, it was about a 15-minute drive to the closest McDonald's or town with two stoplights. Um, my high school continues to have drive your tractor to work day, so that just gives you a sense of the community that I grew up in. It was a terrific place to grow up, raised in a very traditional, wonderful, loving family environment. But when it came time to have that conversation that high school juniors or high school seniors have with their parents about what's next and what could be the possibilities, I got some unexpected answers. I got the answer from my, my father, and I will tell you this story has a happy ending with my father, but I got the answer from my father as I was talking about where I might want to go to college, that girls don't need to go to college. You can go to business school, learn to become a secretary, get a job until your kids are born, and then of course you'll stay home and make the cookies. As I reflect on that moment, it was probably, you know, the most indignant eye roll and the most indignant hand on the hip I've ever been able to muster up in my life. But it was probably the most motivating thing that ever had happened to me in my life up to that point, because at that point, it solidified my determination that I was going to have the life I wanted and I was going to go to college and I was going to be a success in business. Um, I had actually been playing office with my brother for years. And I was the boss and he was the secretary in my play office with my brother scenario. 
So in that moment with my dad, I said, you know what, I'm not going to be a secretary. I'm going to have a secretary. And if you can't help me, I'm going to do this on my own. So off I went to community college at Kellogg Community College because we were near Battle Creek, Michigan. Off I went to community college my first year, couch surfing at friends' homes and uh, realizing couch surfing wasn't really a lifestyle that was going to last very long. So I ended up moving to Ohio where my parents had relocated to and they said, well, you can live with us and we will help you get a loan for $1,000 to go to the local university, which was Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio, here in Northwest, Northwest Ohio. And that turned out to be one of the best things that happened in my life and just the perfect environment for me to go out of a very small town into a bigger town, but a division one university that really was gonna support my long-term success. So fast forward there, I studied business, graduated in four years, earned scholarships so that I was able to afford to graduate and be the first college graduate in my family. That launched me into, from the College of Business, that launched me into that career in business I really wanted to have. I came out of college, went to work for an insurance company, because again, listening to advice from my dad, there are some things you can always count on, death, taxes, the US Post Office, and insurance. Now, he turned out to be right about uh, most of those. The post office is a little bit more iffy these days. So I went into the insurance business and, um, and really worked my way up through, really started with a company that where the training program put you in the mailroom first. And this was a company called Great American Insurance. They're out of Cincinnati, Ohio. I was with them in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, they started you in the mailroom, then the file room, and then you learned how to process business and you learned how to do claims and you learned how to do underwriting. What a terrific foundation that created for my career in the insurance business. So now I'm gonna hit the fast forward button before it gets boring. So this week, I just celebrated my 25th anniversary with Nationwide. In my career, along that journey, I picked up an amazing husband. His name is Alan. We have two wonderful children, uh, Caroline and Jordan. And Alan was so supportive of my career that in the first 12 years we were married, we owned six different houses. As my career progressed through different functions, elevated level of responsibility and the opportunity to move new places and take on new adventures. So I built this career that really established just expertise in just about every functional area that existed in the insurance business. And that just created more opportunity for me when I became associated with Nationwide, which is a company for the whole 25 years I've been here that's really supported the success of their employees, and in particular, the success of women, uh, I just had more opportunities that unfolded for me and ultimately unfolded to a C-suite position here um, as chief customer officer, the first chief customer officer in Nationwide's 100-year history. Amy, it's a great journey. There are so many similarities, I'm sure, that are listeners and viewers are making from the gravity of their parents' advice and influence for good or for bad. In your case, perhaps maybe a little bit of both and how it terms it motivates us to you know, buck against them or perhaps take their wisdom in some cases like the insurance advice your dad gave you. Uh, I saw a lot of similarities in my own career at the Walt Disney Company and then at the Franklin Covey Company, like you, 25 years, 26 years now for me at the Franklin Covey Company. Delighted you had a chance to walk us through that. It really gives, I think, people a roadmap also 
to say, here's a path, steady and solid and somewhat linear trajectory. Other people, of course, have a little less linear. I'm sure all yours weren't two steps forward only, probably a couple of steps back as well. We'll talk about some of the challenges you've had. I'd like to pivot maybe a moment to Nationwide. For the, the listeners around the world who may not know Nationwide as we do here as Americans, as a household, and take a moment and reorient everybody to the nature of Nationwide's business. Sure, and thanks for that opportunity. Nationwide Insurance is a Fortune 100 protection company. We are about 50% property and casualties, so think about insuring businesses and homes and autos and farms. And then we're 50% a financial services company, which is helping Americans prepare for and live in retirement and protect their assets. So life insurance, retirement plans, mutual funds, um, variable annuities, 401ks, um, and we're the largest insurer of pets in America, pet health insurance. So a, a very broad portfolio of products uh, that really ultimately protect our members with extraordinary care. Amy, Nationwide is named as one of Fortune Magazine's 100 place most, you know, best places to work. And you're consistently in those top accolades. To the extent there's a single leadership competency, what do you think is most important for our viewers and listeners who are maybe striving to get on Fortune's list or some other, you know, list like that? I think Nationwide wins lots of awards for culture and retention and diversity. What would you say are the top one or two leadership competencies as you look across the multiple layers of leadership in your organization that ultimately contribute to being one of the 100 best places to work for? What's one or two? So we have a really strong clarity of purpose. Our mission statement is nine simple words. The whole organization knows it and, and we lean into it. It's not just corporate buzzwords. You know, we, we protect people, businesses, and futures with extraordinary care. So the clarity of purpose, the alignment around that purpose, and then it sounds so simple, really hard to execute. Develop a plan, make a plan, measure the plan, execute the plan. And, and so we've got a flywheel effect across all of our planning units of clarity of purpose, focus on a really strong strategy and then a commitment to executing against it. You mentioned the word flywheel. There's lots of ways that can be drawn upon. Of course, Jim Collins, the iconic mm -hmm. author of Build to Last and Good to Great, popularized that idea of you know having the momentum that kind of you know, perpetually moves. I'm sure you've read most of Jim's books. To that point, I'm guessing you're also a voracious reader. Any advice yeah. you would give, other than my books, of course, any advice you give on titles to people that are building their leadership career, what are some of your favorite business and leadership books that have most impacted you? Gosh. Um, Did you need a list of all the titles that I've written? or are, We'll put those aside for well, a moment. Let me just grab them and I'll just give that's everybody helpful. a individual. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I really like a book uh, that's called The Articulate Executive. Oh. It was gifted to me uh, my first year at Nationwide 25 years ago, and I have probably given this book away hundreds of times, and it's really about effective executive presentation skills. And even though they might have changed from how we deliver it, the, the intent of, of content remains the same. I read a lot of biographies as well. I think you can learn a lot 
from people's life lessons. And, and so I read a lot of uh, biographies about world leaders, business leaders, political leaders. Um, and so I, I just think there's a lot to be done there. Um, another favorite of mine from a business is what got you here won't get you there. Marshall and then Goldsmith. lastly, for, for me, I was really influenced by a book that was part of a reading assignment I got when I went to um, the Women's Leadership Academy at Northwestern's uh, Kellogg School of Business, and it's called Women Don't Ask. And it was really about helping women to develop negotiation skills to advance their ideas their, their and themselves and their careers. Amy, to that point, when you and I were off air talking about today's interview, we were talking about what makes a great podcast interview. We were uh, talking about other previous guests and how some perhaps have been a little more long-winded and some are a little more brief. And you, you, uh, you offered up that you kind of have an economy with your words. You tend to be a fairly brief person. Uh, on a different podcast that Franklin Covey hosts on Leadership with Scott Miller, we interviewed a fairly famous author named Sally Heglison. She wrote a book called How Women Rise. And in that book, she, she quoted some research. I'll just repeat whether or not it's accurate or not. It's interesting. And that was that she mentioned that on average, I think men speak something like 7,000 words a day and women speak close to, you know, gosh, three or four times that number of words. And, and, and sometimes that's helpful or unhelpful to how women in the workspace are able to get their point across, or perhaps they're apologizing for their idea. Now, I don't mean to make any dramatic gender declarative statements. Mm -hmm. I'm just reporting what Sally said. Mm -hmm. To what extent, as you have risen in your career, how have your communication skills deliberately, perhaps as, you know, you mentioned an economy with words, you said your favorite book was, I think, you know, The Articulate Leader. What advice would mm -hmm. you give to to uh, women or to men as they think about their brand, their reputation, and how the words they use and the, the, uh, the verboseness or the brevity with which they use them can build or even sink their career. Mm -hmm. Wow, we could do a whole other episode on this right, question. Right. I would say, um, so here I am pausing so that I can be brief in my answers, so that, that's a tell for you on me. I had a professor at Bowling Green who um, taught us, and I still do this today, every time you write something, go back and try to make it 30% shorter and count the number of times you use the word I in a sentence because it shouldn't be about you, it should be about the audience. So that's some terrific advice that I continue to practice today. Now, my style has certainly evolved as time has gone by. And as I have gained experience and tenure, I'd like to think I've become a much better listener and I'm asking much better questions. The power of the question is, um, is amazing. And so, and I think actually the power of the second question is really amazing. So I think it's fine to, to talk, to make your point and to sell your ideas. But then an equal balance of listening and asking questions to really seek to understand. And the power is in that second question. Oh, tell me why you think that. Explain that to me a little more. 
what do you think the motivation is? That second question has such power in it. So I may have rambled and not even answered your original question, Scott, but hopefully there was a hopeful nugget in there. Well, you did. In fact, I think there's a golden nugget because I don't know if it's just in vogue or it truly is becoming a principle. But everybody that I ask this question of, of your stature and higher or equivalent, tends to put listening as a top leadership competency. They tend to rank listening as a relationship competency as a human. And it seems like in a, you know, a fairly contentious world, whether it be politically or economically or you know, uh, medically with you know, the pandemic going on, that every organization right now is looking for mature leaders that can listen to different points of view, that can uh, express empathy from listening, that, to your point, can ask big, bold, open-ended questions. You mentioned sometimes the second question is even more important than the first question. I think it's a, goal, it's a golden nugget that listening has become a consistent answer of everyone I interview. As a leader, do you find that difficult? Because for me, I'm a communicator. I recognize that listening is part of communicating, but I'm typically always in persuasion mode, influence mode, selling mode. And listening is not lost on me, but it is also a leadership competency. How would you rate your listening skills and what do you do to improve them? Well, sometimes you just have to bite the inside of your lips. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you do actually listen. Um, I take notes. I'm a voracious note taker and I um, can process fast enough that I can just about write down verbatim what people say so that I have a chance to go back and reflect on it later. But I have found the best technique for improving my listening skills was note taking. And it doesn't have to be handwritten. It can be in the iPad or whatever device you, you choose to use. Um, but I have been very deliberate about being a better listener. And the other thing that I have become um, a practice that I have put in place is asking permission to offer my viewpoint. And part of this become, comes from I'm now parenting adults. And when you're parenting, you know, smaller children or tweens or even teens, you feel like it's your God-given right to offer your opinion anytime you want. And then once they become adults, you realize, you know, I don't know that we appreciated it as adults and, and I, I don't want them to hear my opinion uh, unless they want to hear it. So I, I hear at work and in the interactions with my adult children will say, I have a thought, are you open to hearing it? Or I have an idea, but I want to know what you think first. And if you, if you force yourself to go second, it gives you a chance to then modify what you think or what you might be saying based on what you hear from the other party first. This has now become a marriage and parenting podcast. I love your insight on that. You know what? There's a lot of leadership that goes on in parenting as well. Isn't that the truth, my friend? Hey, let's talk about what Nationwide looks like after the pandemic. If my research is right, perhaps for a variety of reasons, I'm guessing uh, pandemic was one of them, I think you went from 20 physical offices down to maybe four or five or so. And perhaps that was for other reasons. But talk about What's nationwide like now from 20 to four offices? Feel free to correct me there. And what are some of the lessons you've learned from moving to this hybrid world? What, what would other leaders uh, benefit from learning from Nationwide's journey? Sure. So uh, one of my other duties as assigned is for our corporate real estate portfolio. 
So I have been in the at the middle of of that journey, and we were already embracing a a hybrid and work from home environment before the pandemic. But today we are at about 50 to 55 percent of our associates are in a permanent work from home. We have about another 25 to 30 percent who are in a, a flexible hybrid environment of some sort. And then the remainder are work from office. And it's really uh, up to individual choice, the nature of the job, and um, the nature of the work the team has decided, um, the team does, and, and what the team has decided together. So we've embraced uh, a great deal of flexibility. As a result of that, we found we just didn't need the, the retail space as most other corporations in America. We didn't need rather the, the office space, not the retail space, the office space that we had previously. So we've maintained our office space in some core locations and some more of those satellite locations we've gone to um, work from home. And it certainly is an expense saving measure, but it also, uh, we're finding that our associates have found a way to be just as productive and just as effective in this um, flexible environment. And in fact, in 2021, we had the best year from a profitability and from a sales and revenue growth perspective in our, in our company's history. So, Congratulations. I don't know if our listeners and viewers caught this, but when I asked you the previous question, about moving from 20 offices down to four. Your response was that as part of your responsibility, you have you know, stewardship, over my word, not yours, over the real estate portfolio. And then you followed it by saying, and I was in the middle of that, as opposed to I led that. My sense is ultimately you probably had responsibility. I think it speaks back to your previous insight from your, your college professor around eliminating the word I. At Franklin Covey, we have the same kind of mantra as how much I language is there in our communication as leaders, what we write. You've just modeled what it was you taught 10 minutes ago to our audience. Let's revisit that. What is your mindset? What have you done to sophisticate your maturity around having a we perspective, around recognizing that ultimately you probably are responsible. The buck stops with you. Your compensation, your promotion, your longevity ultimately is related to your performance, but you've obviously conditioned your mind and your language and your thinking around being in the center of something, in the middle of something is the word you use, not the center, the middle. What advice or, or what tips might you give to our listeners and viewers around how to make that shift from I to us, to I led to that versus I was in the middle of that? I think it's a small but important leadership competency you literally just modeled. Well, uh, I don't know if that was intentional on my part, but thank you for noticing. I would say... My sense it was um, probably unconsciously intentional. Yeah, it was. So um, I think it comes down to how people are wired and what motivates them. I am motivated by success of the team. I am, um, I, when I was in sports, I was in team sports. Some people are better at individual sports. Some people are really meant to be a golfer or a singles tennis player or a pole vaulter where it's really on you. I'm motivated by the success of the team and I've been wired that way my whole life. So part of it is just natural inclination. Also, I think some, some more of it is maturity and just realizing that um, 
not every sentence has to begin with the word I. Not everything has to be about about the leader. In fact, it shouldn't be about the leader. It should be about the team and the people we are raising up um, uh, and creating success for everyone. Amy, you're giving us a masterclass right now in who should become a leader. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, my two top strengths in Gallup Strengths Finder are significance and competition. And those are great strengths to have as an individual contributor. I'm not so sure those are the top strengths you want in a leader of people, which is why, although I think over time, like you, I matured and evolved, I probably was not a better leader of people than I was a leader of myself. In fact, my journey probably would have been better as an individual contributor versus being a leader of people. And I've led hundreds of people over the course of my career. But I think to your point, as organizations are identifying the pipeline, the bench strength of leadership, people who want to lead other people, that's an important question to ask people is, what motivates you? Because there's no harm in playing singles tennis. There's no harm in being a golfer and a pole vaulter. But people that have that natural inclination probably need to be encouraged to be individual contributors. Doesn't mean you can't be a great part of a team. Doesn't mean you can't lead projects, but you probably shouldn't be a leader of people that are guiding their careers and their journey. Perhaps to the extent you agree or disagree, riff on that for a few moments around how people should sort of self-assess is becoming a leader of people right for me. And if not, that's fine. What should my own path be? Well, and I think everyone can balance. I think everyone can learn as they mature to balance. And, and you know, there are plenty of terrific golfers that make great CEOs or, or great C-suite leaders. I think it's really about being able to balance the motivation. And um, and I think people who who rise to lead large groups, large groups of people do it as um, the success of the team. And even many entrepreneurs and small business owners that I know who are very self-reliant and self-sufficient also are great at balancing the fact that they're raising up the lifestyle of their team and their customers. For some people though, it might just be a natural lane and, and that's the lane they, that they need to, to be in. So I probably didn't answer your question, but I, I do think people can learn and adapt and balance, but who you are at your core, you have to know. So I think the lesson would be know yourself know your motivators, know yeah. your strengths, yeah. and then surround yourself with people who give you good balance. Well, I think it's great a great insight. I think what I was kind of leaning towards is uh, not everyone should be a leader of people. There's no harm in that. I think a lot of organizations, right. the only path to become more influential, to earn more money, to have a better title, is you have to lead people. And I've seen a lot of careers implode that were great individual contributors, and they were lured into a leadership position and realized, oh, I didn't realize it was about having high courage conversations and showing patience and listening and you know taking joy in the success of those around me, sometimes even at my own career expense. And people can often implode in that. Great discussion around, like you said, really understanding what's right for you and then finding a company that, that has a path for you. Not every company has a path long-term for individual contributors. Um, I'd like to get vulnerable for a moment. I know our time is coming to a close here. I'd like for you to share with our listeners and viewers, what's your biggest professional mistake? Something that you did or said or a decision you made that you look back and say, yeah, here's what I learned from that. It set me back a little bit. And if others could steer clear of that, it would help to accelerate their success. Mm -hmm. Wow, the biggest. 
So I would say the biggest mistakes that I probably repeated too many times, because I don't know that I had like any near fatal mistakes, but I probably just kept tripping over the same thing over and over again was that, um, are you solving the right problem? Yeah. Have you really listened? Have you dug deep enough to know that the solution you're bringing to the table is gonna address the problem you're trying to solve? And thankfully we have um, evolved you know, with lean methodology and agile methodology and test and learn, we've evolved with how we approach problem solving as companies um, so that we can prevent those mistakes. But instead of building great big projects or great big programs to get after something that, you, that you're really confident is gonna solve that problem. And the fact is you may not have really understood the problem to the depth you needed to before you even started solving. That is such great advice. One of my books was called Marketing Mess to Brand Success. And I drew upon my own 10 years as the CMO here at Franklin Covey. And I talked about how I was often a solution searching for a problem, right? Is that I had, what if we did this? And what if we did that? And I didn't take enough time always to really understand what was the problem, not just short term, but long term. And I think my career would have been even more successful. My influence would have been broader more sustainable had I focused on really deeply understanding the problem. I don't know, was it Einstein or Clayton Christensen? Someone said, you know, if I had 10 minutes to solve a problem, I'd spend like eight minutes understanding what the problem was and two minutes, you know, working on my solution. I, I ruined that quote, but you get the point. It, it's very much, you know, point. yeah, very mm -hmm. much to your point. Okay, send us off with some insurance advice. Think about the typical listener, whether they're the average income earner or someone like you or I, perhaps someone that's in the middle of their career. What would you like people to know about insurance? Is there a particular area people tend to be underinsured or overinsured on? Is there an area that tends to move people into financial precariousness or bankruptcy? And if they just knew you've got to have disability insurance or you need long-term care, is there any insurance advice as chief customer officer at Nationwide, you'd send us off to say, everyone go think about this and research that. Yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna cheat and make it a two-parter. Great, One, great. Have a, have a really good licensed professional advisor in your life. It's complicated between your personal insurance, your health insurance, your long-term care insurance, as you're saving for retirement, you may or may not have support from your company in that space get a financial planner, get a really good licensed professional advisor in your life to help you, no matter how many assets you have or don't have, or how young you are or how old you are, it's not too late to get the help from a professional. And secondly, I think the biggest gap we face as Americans in the insurance and financial services space right now is just having enough um, money, saving enough to be ready for retirement and, and to face into the healthcare costs and the other inflationary factors that are going to affect us. So in the conversations with your licensed advisor and your licensed professional, talk about how you can start chipping away and saving and being ready for your retirement so that because we're all going to live a long time and that's terrific. I'm looking forward to it and I have my fingers crossed that applies to me and and it, it's terrific if we can all have, uh, we don't outlive our money. Amy, I'm gonna belabor that point if you don't mind for a moment. Uh, at the time of this taping, my father who is 86 just passed very peacefully about a week ago. 
My father, like you and I, spent you know, 30 plus years at a major defense contractor and in addition to a pension, a word that my generation has no idea what that means, he had insurance, meaning he was retired for over 30 years, retired for 30 years. And he still had medical insurance from his previous employer as part of his benefits. So my father not only had Medicare, but he also had insurance that was covered from his employer as part of his retirement package, which of course is unheard of now for the younger generation. I, I won't retire with any insurance unless I you know, pay for that. Would you give us kind of an understanding, maybe a quick understanding of long-term medical care insurance? And is there a particular um, question that you might advise people to ask their advisor when it comes to you know, retiring in your 60s or 70s and perhaps having some kind of policy that helps to protect you from what are crushing potential medical costs given our you know, increased longevity? So I will tell you, I am not an expert in this space and it would be dangerous for me to even sure. go there. I sure. do think just talk to your advisor because the because long-term care insurance actually will help cover costs if you have to go into some kind of a facility or have to have uh, have to have support in your life in order to perform your daily functions. Yeah. Medical costs, you know, that's a different boat and um, I am not an expert in that space, so it would be really dangerous for me to speculate. Get, get a professional in your life who can help you figure that one out. And, and I'm sorry about to hear that news about your dad. And I, I did want to close the loop. I started the conversation with saying the story with my father has a happy ending. And, and I will tell you that he unfortunately passed away a little over 10 years ago. And, and in the final weeks of his life, he asked me, Amy, do you remember that conversation that we had when, when you were getting ready to graduate from high school and I told you girls didn't need to go to college. And, you know, I was pretty nonchalant about it. And I said, oh yeah, I, I remember. I didn't say, oh my God, this has been the driving force of my motivation. <laughs> um, but, but he said to me, he said these words, he said, Amy, I was wrong. It was what I knew at the time and I'm really proud of you. So I didn't want to end this conversation with folks thinking that he was the villain in the story because he was really a cheerleader in my life. I didn't get that sense at all. Thank you for closing the loop for all those parents out there that can relate to giving their children poor advice, including me and my wife as well. Amy Shore, Executive Vice President and Chief Customer Officer at Nationwide. Thanks for your enormously practical and uh, transparent conversation today on our podcast. We appreciate having you here. Great, thank you. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.